Have you ever wondered what it's like for other people to go through a life event? Is it the same for them? Is it different? And how? My name is Dr. Nikkel Rogers-Wood. I'm a psychologist. I'm doing a podcast with my mom, Dr. Elsa Rogers, Dean of General Studies. And we're going to be talking to different people about what it's like to go through a single life event at the same time. Well, season one of At the Same Time is just about in the books. While I'm sorry that our conversations for this season are coming to an end, I'm really glad to be able to tell you that we have a truly grand finale. Mom and I were lucky to get to speak with the clergy of Congregation Sharat Zedek here in Tampa, and we learned a lot from them. But something I want you to know is that as soon as the interview was over, I called mom and said, oh my goodness. And she told me, oh, I have chills. And I said, so do I. We're really happy to be able to bring you this special conversation and even more excited that we got so much time with the rabbis and the cantor that it's going to be a two-part episode. Here's part one. Thank you, everybody, for joining us for another episode of At the Same Time. We are super lucky this week uh, because, well, first of all, we are interviewing people who we don't know personally, which is a huge get for us. (laughs) (laughs) So we have all of the clergy from the Shaharei Zedek Synagogue. And so we're going to learn a ton about their lives uh, and their perspective as Jewish clergy during this really difficult time with the pandemic. So I'm going to let each of them introduce themselves to you, and then we will jump into our conversation. Well, I'm Rabbi Richard Bernholtz, and I'm Rabbi Emeritus at Congregation Shari Tzedek, where I served for uh, 32 years. And I became a rabbi growing up in Texas because my father and mother who were Holocaust refugees, were very interested in Judaism and keeping it alive for obvious reasons. And my parents were very spiritual. They came from more traditional Jewish backgrounds in Europe. Mm -hmm. And they also had a great interest in the Jewish community and also in theology and philosophy, my father in particular. He would take me on walks on Shabbat on Saturday each week into the woods near our house in Dallas. And he would point out different things. And as he did, especially when he spoke about nature, he would say, isn't that beautiful? And I wonder how God made that or how God feels about this, that, or the other. We also had a lot of talk and speaking about political things. And so I became interested in all of that. And then as president of the youth group of my congregation, I worked with a young new assistant rabbi who became my role model. And so early on, I realized that I wanted to be a rabbi because being such meant engaging in all the different types of work that rabbis do, from teaching to counseling to learning and also to being there with folks in their most difficult and their most triumphant moment. Well, that's really neat. It, it sounds like your dad did a really good job of interweaving life and faith. Absolutely. He did it through his writings. 
even though he was a diamond salesman. Oh. He also, though, did it through his questioning. And when I learned to drive, he and I would drive together to religious school, he to the adult class by the rabbi and I to my religious school class. And we would always talk about the different lessons that we had learned. And as a result of that, I became inquisitive and first started out wondering about and learning about philosophy. And then beyond that, realizing that there are many mysteries in life that we just can't solve. And that took me into the world of theology and realizing that not having answers is good enough and sometimes more important than having them. Oh, wow. I have one question. You said that um, you learned a lot from your father based on the lessons that uh, he learned. Can you just tell us about one of the lessons that your father learned that actually stays with you up to today? Yeah, he would talk about uh, political matters Mm -hmm. and he would say, you know, we don't have to make their problem, meaning one particular party or another, we don't have to make their problem our problem. And from that, I learned that understanding who owns the problem in any type of conflict is important so we don't personalize things that aren't ours to own. And for me, that has been extremely important advice, both professionally and personally. Being able to separate those has kept me from being down in certain situations or at the same time getting too celebratory. So knowing who owns the problem was one of his great lessons. Mm. The other is that God does work in mysterious ways if we are open enough to the moments in which God speaks to us either through word or through simply speaking realizing we're in a special moment. Yes. Mm-hmm. Great teacher. Yeah, that's profound. Yes. Yeah, it's pretty good, huh? <laughs> <laughs> it, pays to, it pays to be 75. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you can so, teach us a lot. <laughs> Rabbi Simon? Um, I'm, I'm Joel Simon. I was ordained as a rabbi um, 13 years ago and uh, came right to Tampa. I was the assistant rabbi. Rabbi Bernholtz was uh, my senior rabbi, mentor, teacher, friend. And for me, it really started also as a youngster. My parents were both very involved in the synagogue growing up as well, probably more than their parents wanted. My dad's parents were refugees out of Austria during World War II. My mom's parents both born in this country, um, in Colorado, where my mom was born, where I was born. And I think belonged to the synagogue out of obligation um, and then saw their kids really find homes there. My parents met in youth group and uh, ended up getting married in college. And, you know, growing up, to, to say the synagogue was a second home sounds cliche, but it really was. I was as comfortable there as anywhere. Um, fell in love with so many aspects, especially the music. When I was five years old, I wanted a guitar. 
Um, finally got it when I was seven. And, you know, my, my guitar teacher didn't know what to do when I asked if he would teach me Baruch Hu, which is one of the <laughs> prayers that we have in our um, service. He was ready for Pink Floyd or something like that. <laughs> um, and maybe not from a seven-year-old, but um, but it was just, and, and, and the trajectory continued from there. So super involved in youth group camp. Rabbi was always kind of the obvious direction people saw me headed. I had a panic attack taking the level one actuarial exam my senior year in high school. I, I, had, I was a math kid, but mm-hmm. having a, a picture of myself doing math for a living was, was not what I wanted to do. And it was, you know, like Rabbi Bernholtz, that interaction, that ability to teach, to counsel, to, um, I didn't know this at the time. Um, the beauty of Reform Judaism is that the Jewish law and the tradition is a guide, it's a voice, but each individual is able to determine the way in which that law and those traditions can be a part of their life. And I think looking back now, I realized that my parents' Judaism was so different from, from their parents' Judaism, um, and my Judaism was so different from theirs. And what I really fell in love with is the ability to be a part of so many people's Jewish journey to say the way in which you live your Judaism doesn't have to be the same way I do. I just hope that you can find meaning in it um, and find help when when you need and find um, support when you need and find um, celebration when you need. Can I and, stop you there for a second? that's what we try to do. Sure. Because that, I don't know, I, I'm having kind of a, a mind-expanding moment because, um, and I, I come from a different faith tradition, but it sounds like, it really is very personal, like each person's faith and each person's journey. And that is okay. Yeah, I I think very much so. And I think even in, in orthodoxy, even in the more traditional Judaism, where it, it expresses itself differently, right? So in orthodox Judaism, you do have to follow all of the laws and you do have to do things the way the rest of your community does it, but you don't have to be thinking the same thing. Um, you know, you can question God, you can question why you're doing it, um, as long as you're doing it, uh, in reform, you question why you're doing it and you might choose not to do it. Um, are there any, but I think any repercussions in case you decide not to do something? Um, well, so, so let me, let me differentiate. We, we have the, um, ethical laws. Mm-hmm. which are the laws that affect our relationship with other people. Um, so you can't choose that you're not going to follow the don't steal. You know, you can't choose, oh, you know, I'm going to go out and, and murder today and that's okay. But the laws between hum- humanity and God are the ones where Reform Judaism has said, you know, those come from a certain time in history and you might be able to live those values even if you don't follow the letter of the law. So when you hear about Jews keeping kosher, not mm-hmm. eating pork or shellfish, mixing milk and meat, um, the way we keep Shabbat, the Sabbath, um, where you may have kind of what you've seen on TV, you know, that those are the laws where I think our goal as Reformed Jews is to have the, the values, to have the spirit of the law, to, you know, think about eating as a holy experience, to think about taking a, a Shabbat, a Sabbath during our week, but the way that that looks might be different. Um, oh, so really repercussions, like I think the only repercussions would be inherent. Like if, if you don't take a Shabbat, you're missing out on what Shabbat can give you. 
Mm-hmm. But there's not going to be a direct punishment for that. Ah, okay. I'm sorry. I totally derailed you. I, I just thought it was so interesting and just, I don't know, open um, yeah. and dynamic. Yeah. Uh, sometimes I need to be derailed. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you were saying that you, your grandparents were surprised that your parents' Judaism looked different and then yours looked different from your parents'. Yeah, but I think that's the 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 beauty of our tradition as well, um, you know. And 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 it's honestly, it's something that I say to every one of our bar and bat mitzvah students at thirteen, right? When when we know you're not becoming an adult, you may hear that sometimes, but you are becoming a teenager, and the way you're looking at the world changes, and we celebrate that moment. And it's it's a really beautiful moment when parents hand the physical Torah. The Torah is. The five books, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which we have in a handwritten scroll in every synagogue. And the parents take that and hand it to, to their kids in our synagogue. And, and I say it right to the kids that the, the Torah that your parents are handing you is the same text that our people have been reading for um, you know at least 2,000, probably 2,500 or more years. And... The text is the same, but the way in which you're going to read it is different. And your Judaism is different than your parents, which is different than their parents. And your job now is to take this text and this tradition and take it into your heart and to make it into something that can be meaningful and relevant to you and your life and something that you'll be able to give to your children, knowing that it will be different for them as well. Um, And I don't think that's just for Judaism. I think, you know, and I know you guys talk about parenting a lot. I think every lesson you give to your parents um, or to your children, you are trusting them to take it to heart, but you can't control what they're going to do with it afterwards. That's so true. true. Yeah, Yeah, I just hope that my kids will hear my voice someday in their future and in the back of their head, they'll say, I hear a voice, my mother saying something. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> I do have to tell you, though, as a parent, um, at, at times when my kids were growing up, I would say I would always talk to them and I always wondered whether they heard me or whether they listened. And it would be amazing that that maybe five years later, they would tell me, mom, remember when you used to say, I said, oh, they did hear me. Yeah, we were listening. I mean, most of the time we were listening. <laughs> yeah, but there's From your mouth another, to God's ears. <laughs> yeah, but there's another side to that. I used to say to myself, why can't my sons be more like me? And now they're in their late 40s and I watch what they do and what they say, and I say to myself, now, why do they, ha- why do they have to be so much like me? <laughs> be careful what you wish for. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, my, my dad was the person who asked me more than anyone, are you sure you want to be a rabbi? And he's a rabbi. Oh, so. my gosh. <laughs> so now, Rabbi Weiss, you have to tell us this story. Oh, so I'm Michael Weiss. I was uh, ordained as a rabbi in May of 2020, so pretty recently. And I started uh, as the assistant rabbi at Shari Tzedek in July, um, which was just last month. So it's all it's all very new. Um, You know, I came to the rabbinate uh, partly because it's the family business. My dad's a rabbi. My mom's a Jewish educator. They met at the rabbinical school that I was just ordained from. 
uh, in Jerusalem at a James Taylor concert. Oh, oh wow. God. Yeah. And, you know, there, there were a lot of times where I wasn't sure it was what I wanted to do, but I do know that Judaism was so woven into the fabric of my life that it was almost impossible to separate it from everything else. Like, I, I was what they called a temple rat, which is... You know, I was just a little kid running around the temple all the time. I was always uh-huh. there. It just felt like home. You know, I didn't know anything else. We we have um, things called sadaka boxes in which we put money to, like, donate to charitable causes. Um, I had never heard of a piggy bank. I thought they were all sadaka boxes. <laughs> <laughs> so, and it was... It was in my teenage years that it finally became clear to me that being a rabbi is what I wanted to do. Um, We have a ritual called uh, confirmation, where it's after you become a bar bat mitzvah at the age of 13. At 16, as a group, you spend the year studying, and then you sort of accept the commandments in in another way, like in a more sophisticated way than a 13-year-old can, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I was on the on the Bima, the raised platform in the synagogue with my dad, and we were both crying. And that was the moment where I thought to myself, this is exactly what I want to do for the rest of my life. I want to be able to do this for my kids. I want to be able to do this for other people's kids. Mm -hmm. Um, From that point, everything I did was to get me to the rabbinate. I think like Rabbi Bernholtz and Rabbi Simon, I really love being able to be with people in their really vulnerable moments. You know, but I, I saw I saw growing up how much time and energy my dad put into this. You have to give a lot of your emotional bandwidth to other people. Um, and it's it's hard, but it's worthy work. You know, so he was the one who was most worried about me. I, I don't think he was worried about my my abilities. It was just sort of my well being. But I've I've loved every second of it. The thing I wanted to say is I love being with people. I'm also a big Jewish text nerd. Um, that's one of the things I love about Judaism. You have a 3,000 year tradition. So, you know, you can find a text or a story that relates to almost anything that you could ever think of. Mm. So I'm, I'm really in love with the stories that are so profound and prescient that it feels like they could have been written yesterday. I'm also a really big fan of the things that are so arcane and absurd that. Uh, <laughs> They only could have been talking about, spoken about in a, a different time and place by people who were so concerned about the minutia because they thought that every little detail of ritual practice had like cosmic impact, right? Wow. You'd want to get the details right if, if you lived your life that way. Yeah. I mean, if you felt like that was going to make the difference, then yeah, everything would matter. Yeah. If you're facing East or West, you know, if, if you get up on the proper side of the bed, that kind of thing. Wow. You want to get it all right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cantor Canizaro, can you tell us um, more about your faith journey and how you came to be a cantor? Happy to do it. So I've been listening to the rabbis and thinking to myself, wow, I wish I'd had that kind of background. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of the rebel. I was the one who fought any kind of religion. And when I had my bat mitzvah, it was a miracle that I actually got through it. <laughs> I love telling that story to my students. It's like, oh, yeah, your bar was going to be just fine because I fought everything. I did not want to be Jewish. I did not want to do anything that my parents told me I had to do. So I was a, a rebel. The only thing I wanted to do was sing. 
because I could sing since the day that I can remember I've been singing. So I went to college and I got my bachelor's and my master's in vocal performance and I was singing and God works in mysterious ways. I will tell you that because I kept, every time I would sing in a church or in a synagogue, that's where I was happy and comfortable. And people would tell me, wow, your faith is so apparent. And I would think to myself, um, okay. Mm-hmm. And after a while, it became apparent to me that that's where I needed to be. And during the time I was searching for my own personal faith and what I wanted to do, I, I found teaching because I love to teach. And I think what did it for me, and this is a story, I, I told this to Rabbi Bernholtz when I was interviewing. And this story was my, my, young, my oldest son, Michael, when he was five years old, he was diagnosed with leukemia. And I, he is fine. He is 23. He's graduating from the fire Academy this week. He's I'm happy for him. I'm in. It's great. God is great. And life is great. But while I was in the hospital, I was sitting there, you know, helpless because there was nothing I could do. And what do we do in those situations? We pray. And I remember sitting in front of a computer, just sitting there. And I was praying saying, God, if you will get my son through this, I will dedicate my life to you and I will become a cantor because I had been vacillating back and forth. What should I do? And and Michael pulled through. He never had a problem. He recovered. And I, that year, applied and started working toward the cantorate. And I've never looked back and I have been happy happy every step of the way. And one of the things that I've discovered as a cantor is that I have a voice. God gave me a voice. I work really hard for things, but my voice is one thing that there's nothing I can do. This is a gift that I was given. And when I sing, I sing for people or I sing for others not just for myself, I get pleasure from singing. But when I sing, what makes me the happiest is when it when I touch people through my voice. So when I'm singing and people will come up to me after the service and say, that was so meaningful to me. I, wa- I would be, that just makes me so happy, it fulfills me. And I feel like I have succeeded in life what God gave me. The other thing that I love is uh, teaching. And when I teach, when I uh, help somebody realize a concept or I see the light bulb go on in somebody's eyes, that also, I feel fulfilled. Like I have done what I'm supposed to do in my life. That sounds really so meaningful, you know, to be able to live in a way where where what you do um, sounds like fills you up. It does. It does. I love my job. I love what I do. Uh, if I'm working and I'm, I'll come here in the morning and I'll stay till like night or something when we're back in the day when we could all do that. <laughs> uh, I know, right? But I, I never feel like I'm working because I'm doing what I love. And you know, that's... You're, you're very fortunate to be one of those people who actually love what you do. Most people just do it because. Right. 
I talked to a rabbi once. I remember this was years ago, and it was a rabbi down in Florida, uh, uh, south of here. I was born here in Florida. I was born in Miami, mm. and I grew up about two and a half hours south of here in Fort Myers. And I was speaking with a rabbi who was a fabulous rabbi. He was wonderful. And we were talking and he said, and I said to him how much I loved what I did. And he said, you're very fortunate because I hate what I do. And I was amazed. I was amazed because he was so good. He was such a wonderful Mm -hmm. rabbi. And he said, I know I'm a good rabbi and I don't want to do it, but I do it. And that, that really stuck with me that I thank you every morning. Thank you, God, because I'm doing something that I love. Now, it's taken me a long time to get to this spot. There were many, many years where where what I did, I did not like to do until I allowed my heart to follow what I was being led to do. Until I did that, it was not the case. And um, yeah, there's a really, I have a really deep spiritual side that most people don't see. It's really funny because I, I, I'm a very, uh, I, I don't share that side of me very often unless I'm speaking one-on-one with somebody or they need to hear it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like everybody had a different path to the clergy or leadership in the Jewish synagogue, but that it, it was important. Like it, it kind of rounded things out. Like this is where you're supposed to be is what I'm hearing. Yes. So this is the natural progression um, for each of you. Yeah, definitely. What I also see, too, is the fact that um, your varied experiences would make you such a dynamic group. Well, and, and I think that's a goal in putting a, a, a team like this together. You know, as Rabbi Bernholtz and I share a lot, um, but we also, in, in so many ways, couldn't be more different from, from one another. And when I was looking for my first assistant job, one of my mentors at the time said to me, you know, it's easiest to go to a job where you're exactly like the person you're working with. But what the ideal job is, is when you find someone who you enjoy being with, but who challenges you and who thinks about things differently, not only to push yourself, but also we have almost 1,300 families in our congregation, each of whom is very different from one another, and each individual is very different from one another. And if someone doesn't connect as well to me, but can connect to rabbi or cantor or rabbi, you know, that's wonderful. It's not about any one of us as individuals. It's about having someone that you trust when you need. And, and I think we're very lucky right. to have a diverse group who works really well together, who all of the members of our community have someone that they know that they, they can go to. And I think that goes back to what you were talking about, uh, about Reformed Judaism, that there's not a, quote, right way to be doing this. And so it's so good to be able to see um, somebody that you connect with yeah. in the clergy so that it, it feels like you belong mm-hmm. um, in the community. And, and if you don't like the answer one gives you, you go to another one. And, and it's not like, you know, mom and dad, that it, it's different. You know, can I change the date of my bar mitzvah? Um, that one, you don't want them to go uh, from one to the other. But, but if it really is a spiritual question, I think it's great to get different answers and different perspectives. And that's why we're so excited that we, we could all be yeah. on today. Fantastic. That's one of the things, like even in a service, 
where we have a lot of singing in the service. And people will say to me, oh, I'm afraid to sing because I don't have a voice. I don't have a good voice. And we'll tell them, God, I mean, and I'll still tell them, I don't think God really cares. God, <laughs> God, God is not going to care if you're on key. Don't worry about it. If you're so moved to sing, sing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Very cool. Yeah. Um, oh, go ahead, Mom. No, no, you go ahead, sweetheart. No, I was just going to ask. Um, oh, you called me sweetheart. I don't look like a professional. Um, just kidding. Um, so what we were curious about, um, because something that made me want to contact you all was just looking around your website. And it just it felt like a close knit community. And so I just kind of wonder about how you foster connectedness with so many different people, um, so many different perspectives. And it sounds like your congregation like, and your synagogue, you guys do a lot of different things. I think there's your answer. We keep people busy. Ah. I think that's, that's your answer, what you just said. We do so many different things because we have so many different people in the congregation. And... One of the most important things for me about Judaism is the feeling of community, the the kila, the, the community, everybody, the holy community that we all make together. And by doing so many different things, by trying to reach out to so many different groups, even during our pandemic, we are still reaching out to all of those people and trying to keep them involved in some way, shape or form in the Jewish community. And I think that's mm-hmm. That's the answer. How are you doing that? Because I imagine that not being able to gather really, I mean, it's disruptive when, you know, kind of that sense of connectedness can kind of feel lost. Can I jump in for a second before um, we answer that question? Because it really builds on what Cantor Cantazaro was saying. Um, I remember one of the great stories from Eastern Europe that is often told. And it's a story about a man who goes to synagogue, whose son, who is now enlightened, and asks him, Dad, how can you go to the synagogue and pray, and pray to a God who allows so many bad things to happen in the world? Mm -hmm. And the father answers, I go because I find my friend Schwartz there when we're praying. And for me, God is in Schwartz, meaning all of us have different ways of accessing our Judaism and God. And so our temple program and general attitude is set up such that no matter which way you find or don't find God, we can do it through community. We find God in Schwartz. We find God in one another. And that's why we do as many things that we do with as many in as many different ways. I think that's important to understand about who we are, as Shari said. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's also that, that you might come in because you love services and you love praying 
And while you're at a service, you hear about a social event or a community service event or a brotherhood or sisterhood event. And, you know, you, you expand your, your horizons in that way, or, you know, you love to study and you come into to a class, but whatever the entry point is, that might be the only way you connect in, in your relationship with us, but you might try, try other things as well. And I think that's the system that Rabbi Bernholtz mm-hmm. helped to build here that has allowed so many different people to find a home, to find a place that, that they're comfortable, but then to go outside of that comfort zone and try new things as well. And that doesn't mean everyone. I think, you know, there are people who consistently will come in after the service starts and leave right before it ends because they're not looking for that connection. They really just want the service. Um, Others will come five minutes before the service ends because they want the Oneg Shabbat, which is the cookies and cakes that we put out after the service is over. And, (laughs) um, and, And I think that leads to, to the next question, which is what happens when, when you can't do that. You know, Rabbi has always said, Rabbi Bernholtz has always said, if you feed them, they'll come. And for five months now, we haven't been able to give people food. Mm-hmm. Um, and and what does that mean? And, and you know, I think this will be interesting to hear everyone's perspective. Um, I think that a lot of people have been able to find something in the in the virtual, right? Whether it's a live stream or Zoom, whether it's a service or a class or a cooking class, um, which, which Cantor can talk more about. We're trying to create all those same different opportunities. I think a lot of people are getting something from it. Others yeah. are not because even though we are, you know, I believe that when we're all sitting together at the computer and, you know, watching or participating that, that we are together, and I think we can get to that place, but we're also not, and and we're not physically in the same space, and 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 I think that's a real hurdle yeah. for people. Has anyone reached out to any one of you to indicate that they're lonely, they're sad, but you know at the same time they can't communicate physically? How do you deal with such a person? It's very difficult, but. I had several people reach out to me and they're alone. Mm-hmm. They don't mm-hmm. they don't go out. They're afraid to go out because they might have an underlying medical condition. Mm-hmm. And the best thing I can do is I just spoke to somebody yesterday and we zoomed for like 45 minutes and I just had her she just talked and talked and I just listened and we laughed together and joked and even though I wasn't there to give her a hug or or to do anything like that I she I think she felt better just being able to reach out and talk to somebody. Yeah. Well, and the fact that you were like, and I get this sense from all four of you that you are accessible to your congregants. So the fact that she felt like, Oh, I can call Cantor Canizaro and tell her this. I think that that is also a big deal. Yes. I think that's huge. I can never imagine sending a text to my rabbi growing up. Now, part of that is there weren't, there was no such thing as texts when I was growing up. But you know, to to call the rabbi at home, um, someone had better have died um, when when I was growing up. Um, and I don't know that that was true everywhere. And and I think part of it is changing society. 
but I get texts and phone calls all the time for, you know, sometimes it's, it's really needing, you know, someone is sick or a deep conversation or a, a really challenging time. And someone it's rabbi, what time does the class start tomorrow morning? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think because we had that relationship with our congregation before the pandemic started, mm-hmm. it made people even more comfortable um, during this time where maybe it's not calling us in the office, but calling us at yeah. home. Um, and, and even for, you know, the, in, in a lot of ways, this is nothing new. My mom had health issues for mm-hmm. her whole life. And, you know, I remember on Rosh Hashanah, um, our high holy days, it's Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, like our Christmas and Easter. They're the big okay. holidays for us. And there were years where my mom just couldn't go. And the synagogue had a phone number that you could call in and listen to the service. And my mom would lay in bed. And I don't think she, we even had speakerphone at that time. She would just keep the phone on her ear and listen to to the service. And it wasn't the same, but it was able to to give her that that sense of being connected. Mm-hmm. And now, whether it's watching a service online or FaceTiming with a family who, who is in the hospital, you know, would it be better if we were physically there? Of course it would. But when you have that connection already, or even if you don't, you're still, you know, in, in some ways I would rather be on FaceTime with a family in the hospital where we can see one another than to be in a mask where you can't see the face. Um, Yeah. You know, so, so I think the challenge is more in the content than, and the context than, than the way it's being. Rabbi, I was just thinking that, um, you know, this isn't new for you. This is all very new for me, right? (laughs) Having a congregation, Mm -hmm. all the more so having a congregation in the time of COVID-19, I, I think that knowing people beforehand and having those relationships makes it a little easier to transition over to sort of more mm-hmm. virtual platforms for connection. Um, mm-hmm. I met 30, maybe 30 people in the congregation in person when I came here for the interview in February, which was good timing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and almost everyone I'm meeting now is over the phone or over Zoom. I, th- I think it's working. I, I think people are starting to feel connected to me. I certainly feel connected to them. I think it just takes a little more effort to sort of ask the right questions, sort of bringing out sort of the, the deeper aspects of people that sometimes don't come out over a phone call. I think we mm-hmm. sometimes think phone calls can be a little more casual or perfunctory, but I'm, I have to put in a lot of time and energy to make sure that they are as meaningful as in-person interactions are. Yeah, yeah. You know, as you talk about interactions, have you all had the need to perhaps form partnerships in the wider community with other, uh, let's say, faith groups? In other words, um, let's say like you, you have a very united com- uh, community in your um, in your synagogue, but there may be other groups of people who may not necessarily have that. Have they reached out to you in any way for assistance? I think I've had other cantors reach out to me. Okay. Uh, we have an organization called the Bay Area Cantors Association, mm-hmm. uh, which I'm the president. And we are planning right now to do a Zoom concert, hopefully sometime. 
Oh, wow. And and that's going to be fun. It's going to be different because yeah. we usually do an annual concert where we raise money and then we donate it to one of the cantorial schools so that we can offer scholarships to people who are working toward their cantorial degree. And we're going to be doing a concert. I'm not sure how we'll raise money that way. Probably not this year, but we'd like to at mm-hmm. least reach people. That's yeah. one way. Yeah. I mean, I think there are different. So the, the technology piece, right? We, as a synagogue, were streaming our services. We were doing classes by Zoom before this yeah. started. So so this was definitely a place where other synagogues and some neighboring churches came for, for technology help. Yeah. But I think it does go beyond that. And, and, you know, I have had conversations with some pastor friends um, because we're all going through the same thing. And... You know, I, I think religion has been in the spotlight a lot over the last few months because there's kind of been this trope of, you know, well, why can I do this and this and this, but I can't go to church yeah. or synagogue? Um, and, you know, I think it puts religious leadership in in a tough spot because, you know, we recognize, yes, you can go to the grocery store, you can do these things and, and what does it mean to be essential? Mm-hmm. And I think what we've found and, and, you know, I, I've never had any question, are we essential? I think we're essential. I think what we provide to people is extremely essential yeah. right now, but we've found that we can do it without being physically together. Yeah. And at this time, not being together is essential mm-hmm. because every interaction we limit, we're, you know, potentially, right, we're, we're potentially preventing the, the spread right. of, of, of the virus. So, um, you know, but that said, the ones who are most vulnerable and the elderly, you know, are also the ones in a lot of ways who, who are having the hardest time with the, the technology. And a lot of, I mean, we, we have a senior luncheon, again, even without the free food, um, <laughs> we still have our seniors coming together for lunch. Um, from home, but we're missing a lot of people who would have been in the building. And that's where the old fashioned phone becomes so important in making sure you're making those calls and and that people know Mm -hmm. that we're there. I really enjoyed getting to learn how each of the clergy members came to faith and to the decision to be a member of the clergy. And then also how their religious community is building community and maintaining community during times when they can't physically be together. So like I said at the beginning of the episode, this is only the first part. There is so much more. So please make sure to join us for next week's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to rate and subscribe to At The Same Time on whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. That way, you won't miss a single episode. We'd love for you to connect with us online. Our website is sametimepod.fireside.fm. You can also follow us on Twitter, at sametimepod. Music by purpleplanet.com. Copyright 2020 by Nikel Rogers Wood, PhD, and Elsa Rogers, PhD.